to Matthew chapter 2. Uh, by way of review, <clears throat> we saw that Matthew begins by showing the humanity of Jesus, and then, starting in verse 18, the divinity of Jesus. Uh, we saw that while Mary was blessed with the honor of giving birth to Jesus, she was a sinner in need of a Savior, just like the rest of us. We also are seeing Matthew and Luke given a consistent timeline from the announcement of Jesus' birth to a few years later with the death of Herod. We'll deal more with that today as well. So far we have seen in how, how Matthew has very deliberately related the facts about Jesus to show that he alone uh, was qualified to be the Messiah. We saw that from the very start, that uh, once you kind of put all this together, you realize that there is no longer any possibility for another Messiah to come. Jesus fulfilled everything in his day. <clears throat> he clearly also claimed that Jesus was virgin birth, which he continues on in verses 24 and 25. Uh, three times he makes mention of that fact. The only reason all this really matters that, you know, that Jesus was born of a virgin is that because he is sinless and, uh, he led a sinless life. If that, it wouldn't matter. Except that Jesus had to, to qualify to be our Redeemer, be the perfect son, the sinless, blemless, Lamb of God, right? And so, those who deny the virgin birth don't understand the fall, nor the human, the holy nature of God. They don't understand their sin, and they don't understand the holiness of God that requires a perfect sacrifice for that sin. And so, if you don't, under, you don't have a good theology on sin and the sin nature, you don't understand the importance of what we're reading here. Uh, a skeptic once asked a Christian, uh, they were evidently a child in front of them, he said, if that child over there was born of a virgin, would you believe him? And he says, yes, I would, if he lived a sinless life. <laughs> in other words, yeah, if it all came together as it did in Jesus Christ, absolutely. But of course, that's, that will not be. His divine nature, and therefore his perfect righteousness, is the whole point of what Matthew, and especially Luke, are bringing out. And so, uh, in chapter 2, as we come to the account of the Magi's visit, we can't lose sight of what's going on in, in, in what it, how it's being presented to us. This is not being presented as a sentimental story that we are to read once a year. It is related to us to help us understand who Jesus is and certainly that the Gentiles have part in him. As we'll see here in a moment, the uh, Old Testament, especially the prophets, are full of prophecies that the Gentiles will benefit from the work of Christ. And so we're seeing a picture of that in chapter 2. <clears throat> Many times in the Old Testament, we are told that kings will come and worship him. A very interesting one is in Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3. Where it says, and the Gentiles shall come to thy light, and the kings to the brightness of thy rising. We'll see one in a moment here also that refers to the kings and their gifts that they bring. But here we see kings will come. Now, uh, these verses aren't speaking only of the visit of the Magi. 
But they speak, of course, to the broader context of the Gentiles. Uh, the, the, the Gentiles will come to uh, worship Jesus Christ. And so it's only right, though, that at his birth, he would have this fulfilled in a very literal way that we might understand what is happening. From verse 11, we learn that this visit takes place a year or two after his birth. Of course, uh, that's why Herod has males from two years down. Uh, he is uh, trying to make sure he's going probably erring on the side of caution to make sure he, he gets that child, which, of course, he can't do. Uh, the Lord doesn't want him to, and the Lord saves, of course, Jesus from being slaughtered. But Luke tells us that after Mary had completed her, peri- her period of purification, she brought turtle doves uh, instead of a lamb. This was okay if you were poor and couldn't afford a lamb. You could bring turtle doves. Well, that meant that this took place some uh 49 days after her delivery. So we know the uh, Magi hadn't visited at that point because she didn't have the gifts, the, the money from the gifts that they brought. So you, you already know that it's it's been a few months into the future before the Magi got there. And let me just give you a little timeline here to help us understand the period that we see here because, you know, if you're like me, my parents had a manger scene, uh, a nativity scene that they would bring out every Christmas. And in it, you had the cast of characters. You had Jesus and Mary and Joseph. You had the animals. You had the shepherds all down there in the stable. And the three kings or the magi were there as well. And, of course, you know, that's kind of how traditions go. But as traditions often are, they uh, it's not quite biblical. The... Uh, Magi were not there when the shepherds came in Luke 2 to worship Jesus. And so it's, it's important for us to understand um, what how it took place so that we can answer the skeptics who love to point out little things that they think are errors and so forth. But first of all, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, perhaps a year or so earlier from our account. The star leads the Magi as far as Jerusalem and then Disappears for whatever reasons. Once in Jerusalem, the Magi began to inquire where the Christ child could be found by asking the people of the city. Word reaches Herod that the Magi have come to town seeking to find a newborn king of the Jews so that they may worship him. Herod is greatly troubled by this news and consequently so are those in all of Jerusalem. This is not unusual because Herod was a murderous. He, anybody he suspected of being untrue was murdered. Well, we see, of course, what he did with the kids and the, the males and boys in uh, Jerusalem. So when he was troubled, everybody knew that uh, there's no telling what he could do. And so when he is troubled, it's not that the, 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 the populace was troubled in the same sense he was. It was that when Herod's not in a good mood, Nobody's in a good mood, right? And that's kind of what's going on here. Next, Herod summons the chief priests and experts in the law, inquiring of them where the Messiah was to be born. The religious elite inform Herod that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem, citing his proof, Micah 5.2. Of course, all this Jeff read. 
Herod then privately summons the Magi and has a meeting with them alone. He asks them when the star appeared, thus fixing the birth date of the Holy Child and therefore his age. Herod then sends the Magi to Bethlehem to find the Messiah, instructing them to return and inform him of the location of the child so that he can worship the child. As the Magi leave Jerusalem, heading toward Bethlehem, the star reappears once again. The Magi rejoice greatly because their divinely provided guidance has returned. The star then leads them to the Magi, the Magi to the exact location of the child where they worship him. So that's the uh, kind of a brief uh, timeline of what went on during the account of Matthew, especially. Uh, some years ago, I uh, brought up a, uh, a, I think we saw in Sunday school, we watched a video of a possible reference to what the star of Bethlehem could have been. I don't know if you remember that or not. I won't go into all that now, but if you're interested, I can uh, find that link for you. It's a very interesting uh, possibility. Uh, it's not without its problems, but it, it, it can, it's not been refuted. It's plausible, and it's very interesting, and it would still... Uh, be something that God did and ordained. And so anyway, if you're interested in that, um, I give it to you, but since we aren't given, you know, we're not given any explanation of that, then we, we know that that's not overly important. What about the Magi? Who are these guys? Uh, during the Middle Ages, a lot of myths and speculations arose concerning who they were. Uh, but the, the, uh, the simple answer is we really don't know for sure who they were. Although we have a pretty good indication that they came out of Persia or that area. They were certainly from that direction. Um, we don't know their names. Uh, so any time you hear anybody give a name and there are some, you know, names have been given to them, uh, that's just somebody made all that up. We don't know how many there were. There were three gifts, and so some have taken that to mean there was three magi, but that's, again, speculation. But we do know that the Magi, or uh, the idea of wise men, uh, were terms for a priestly political class of Parthians who lived east of Palestine near Persia. They were skilled originally in astronomy and astrology, hence they were called the Magi, or from where we get the term magic, because they, you know, astrology is not the same thing as astronomy, the study of the heavens is one thing, the scientific study of the heavens. To assume that the bodily, the heavenly bodily somehow direct our lives is idolatry, whether it be horoscope or whatever. And that, but, but originally they, that was all kind of lumped together. So they were considered to be wise in that sense. If you look in the Greek, you'd see here where it says Magi, um, these wise men is literally as uh, M A G O S. Uh, it's where they it's where they come from. So when it's when it was they were considered to be wise, and so that's why it's translated in that way. Just give you uh, one example here in Jeremiah where they are mentioned uh, when all the officials of the king of Babylon came and sat at the middle gate. Um, I'm going to pass on uh, that guy's name of Shangar. Uh, he is called, um, the, the next guy is called, uh, Nebu Sechem, the Rabsaris, which is the chief, Rab means chief, 
Sarah's eunuch. Nargal Sarizer, the Reb Mag, or Mag, Regi, that's the chief magician, or the chief, not so much, you know, like they did magic tricks or anything like that. They were uh, wise men. And then all the rest of the officers of the king of Babylon. But that's a reference to who these guys, no doubt, were, or very similar. There's, there's a, some good evidence that they were uh, influenced by Daniel's prophecies, uh, which took place at the end of the Babylonian reign and also into um, Persian. Uh, there was a time in the Roman world where there was speculation that there would a king was to come out of Judea and uh, set up a, a, a everlasting kingdom, perhaps not only from the influence of Daniel's prophecies, but there was Jews scattered throughout the Roman Empire, so they would have had some measure of influence. So there was there was that understanding. And the Magi probably assumed that anyone living in Judea would know exactly who they were talking about. If they were able to figure this scene out, why wouldn't the Jews? And of course the Jews really did know, as we'll see here in a moment. Many of them did. Before we go any further, let me suggest uh, to, to kind of set up the rest of the message There is in the Bible a motif of the wise and the foolish, right? We see it very heavily in um, the book of Proverbs, where you have the wise man who is the one who fears God, who listens and obeys the word of God, and you have the fool. The fool is the one who rejects God's revelation, who lives for himself. This is carried on throughout. God's word in, in some ways. Jesus uh, picks up on it. Remember when he gives the parable of the wise man who built his house upon a rock and the foolish man who built his house on the sand. So there's this, this motif. The wise man is the one who follows the light. The fool is the one who walks in darkness. And so there's, you know, as you read this account, you, you kind of see all this coming together. The wise man called that way for whatever reason, it, the, the Bible picks it, the, the, it's, it's inspired in such a way so that we see wise men following the light to worship God. And we also see some other characters in this uh, chapter, and they're not wise. They're fools, and they're walking in darkness. And of course, we'll see that with Herod and the religious elite. So, to help, I think... To really benefit from this passage, you, you kind of got to keep that in mind. Um, <clears throat> in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, the people who walk in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has the light shined. This is, of course, speaking of Israel in the day of Christ when they were in darkness and Christ coming and he's the light of the world. And, of course, John says that they, he came into his own and his own received him not. So, by and large, Israel, certainly the leaders of Israel, rejected the light. And so these men bring light to Herod, and his reaction is not one who's seeking to worship the king, but like a cockroach, when the light's turned on, he scurries away. He he does what fools do. He rejects uh, the uh, king of glory. And so, like all rebels, he sees Jesus as a threat to his rule. I mean, it's, he's a literal king with a literal realm. But in a sense, we all are, right? We all have a heart. We rule our hearts. And we either 
submit to the rule of Christ, or we say, no, I'll rule myself, thank you very much. And that, that's what, uh, so Herod's just an example of the fallen nature of all of us. <clears throat> now, he had driven out the Parthians in about 30 B.C., so perhaps when they come, talking about a new king, he perceives it as a threat, but of course, remember, he perceived everybody as a threat. He had his own sons murdered, his, his wife, one of his wives, I think, he, he murdered because he perceived him as threats. And that's why when Herod was troubled, all Jerusalem was troubled with him. And so he rightly asked the religious leaders, uh, well, where is this Messiah supposed to be born? Does the Old Testament say anything about it? I'm not surprised that he doesn't know because he was a real, kind of a half-Jew uh, pagan. Didn't care anything about any of this anyway. But it's interesting because um, they, they do know full well where the Messiah was to come from, and that was Bethlehem. And they, they knew that from Micah chapter 2, verse 5. Or, or 5-2, I think it was, yeah. So, <clears throat> but his concern was not that he could worship this Messiah, but, but that he could kill him. And so you have the, the second group, you, you have the wise men, then you have the Herod, then you have the scribes and the chief priests. And they knew the prophecies, but they're a little bit different than Herod. Herod is openly hostile towards the king. Uh, They just don't care. They say, oh yeah, Micah says we born in Bethlehem. Uh, The wise men are here saying that the king's going to be born there. They've come to worship him. You think they'd say, well, wow, you know, let's go check this out. Because the prophecy's there. So maybe this is a fulfillment of the prophecy. But no. They say, okay, yeah, this is, that's where it is, but we, you know, we're, we're comfortable, we're doing our own thing, uh, don't bother us. So that they, they kind of, uh, represent the skeptic. The, the, the probably the, the, represent the most, uh, the, the greatest population on the earth. The people just don't care. They've got their own religion, you've got yours, fine, I, you know, I don't care. <clears throat> so they're not even troubled enough to go five miles over to Bethlehem to see uh, if, if any of this is true. But the wise men might not know much like these uh, religious elite. And they have a lot of questions. But again, notice what the difference between the wise man and the fool. They ask the questions. They search they look. Nothing else matters, but we want to worship this king. We've come to worship the king. And that's all they care about. So the true light always brings one to Christ. Always brings one to your knees before the Lord. In worship and in repentance and faith. That's what true light does. When God, God through the Holy Spirit regenerates and shines true light, false light, is always damning. False light will always uh, lead you away from the Lord in some way or another. But their purpose was to find him and not to use him. And that's why a lot of people come to Christ because they want to use him for something. They come to worship him. They come bearing gifts. So you see how I think all this fits into the motif of the wise and the foolish. And so in verse 11, when they walk into the house and they see Mary holding Jesus, they fall down and worship him. And uh, they, they offer these, uh, these three <laughs> gifts to him. 
And so it's a great step forward to realize that the Bible is not just a haphazard story written by man that might have some of God's word in it, might not. But what the Bible is, is inspired word of God that comes directly from God in such a way so that we can rely upon it for wisdom and light. We can save ourselves from not only our sin and the judgment of God, but from all many of the pitfalls of this world as we walk in its light. And so as we, we're seeing this, we're seeing the, the, the divine nature of God's word. It's not just a, a story that, well, is this, did this really happen or not? And there seems to be inconsistencies here. No, it's a consistent story, as we've seen here, between Matthew and Luke, uh, to, to teach us about Jesus Christ and who he was. Now, let's just talk for a moment about the three gifts that they bring. Um, the significance, I don't think, is in how many gifts there were and whether there were three of them or not, but uh, three men. Uh, it was what they gave. In uh, another interesting verse here that I think we see the fulfillment of here, may the kings of Tar- Tarshish and of the coastlands, and the coastlands in, in the prophecy sp- was speaking of the whole world, the, the, all the coasts across the oceans and so forth, render him tribute, may the kings of Sheba and Seba bring gifts, a multitude of camels shall cover you, the young camels of Midian and Ephah. All those from Sheba shall come. They shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall their good, and shall bring good news, the praises of the Lord. Now, as I said before, I think there's a, this, that such prophecies look forward to the day in which people are brought into the kingdom and recognize Jesus as the king. But, at the same time, You can't help but notice that they actually mentioned gold and frankincense as literal gifts that will be brought to the king. And so it's no surprise that we see this coming true. Just one more way that we see that that this is the word of God. Gold was the costliest of gifts. It was a a typical gift you gave to a king. It was the most precious of gifts. It was a custom in Persia at this time, for anyone to approach the king to give them a gift made of gold. And so they're doing what you would expect them to do. Now, while these gifts no doubt provide funds for their soon-to-be flight to Egypt, I think their significance is in what they say about Jesus. That is the thing that we are to see here. We know that Jesus came to set up a kingdom. Uh, When he and John began their ministry, they said, repent for the kingdom is about to begin, right? Jesus, someone said that this is, uh, I, I don't know who it was, I forget, some commentator said that when the when these kings, or these magi, they weren't necessarily kings, uh, but they uh, when they came and they brought their gifts, that was the coronation of Jesus as king. Uh, I don't know if it's something I would argue strongly about, but I really don't think this is when he was coronated. I think Jesus was coronated um, <clears throat> when he ascended on high. And as the, uh, Psalm 1 says, the Lord said to well, Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand. And Jesus assumed the mediatorial throne and that we're in that kingdom now. Not, not the eternal kingdom, but the kingdom in which God is saving a people. Building the church. So I would say he was 
coronated at that time. And there's other reasons we could go into. Daniel 7, I think, talks about this and so forth. Um, but, you know, we've already dealt with that. So if you're interested, I can talk to you after uh, the message. But they're, they're bringing the goal because that's what Christ was going to do. Secondly, they bring frankincense. This was incense that was mixed with just about everything and everyone involved in temple worship. It, it was on all the the, 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 uh, the stuff that the uh, the priest wore. Uh, and, and they, of course, they had incense that they burned. Uh, it was part of the temple worship. It was also it was it was used by by everybody in one sense or another. It, it had a pleasant odor. And in a day of infrequent baths and probably ineffective deodorant, that's how they kind of covered up the smell. And you can imagine the temple where animals are being slaughtered every day. It kind of helped cover all that up. But its primary focus, use, was to be mixed in with the sacrifices. So the idea there was that when that sacrifice was made, it was a sweet and pleasing aroma to the Lord. Not that the Lord cares about the fragrance, but it, it was a sign that he accepted it. He was pleased with it. Looking forward to the day when um, Jesus would give himself on the cross and it would please the Father and he would accept it as a substitute for us. <clears throat> and so in Revelation 8, we remember we read that the incense was mixed with the prayers of the saints. And of course, in typology, the golden altar, that it was at the, the, the last thing before he got to the most holy place, uh, was always burning that incense. And it represents, among other things, the prayers of the saints. That when we pray to the Lord, whether it be thanksgiving, whether it be prayers for his help, because we're coming to him in, in our needs, it all pleases the Father. He's, he's pleased with that. By coming to him and trusting in him. <clears throat> and so... Um, it spoke of Jesus as priest, of his, as he bore the wrath of God on the cross. He, he was our priest. He was doing the work of a priest. And then thirdly, we have myrrh. And that was also a, perf, perf, a perfume spice that was used much for burials. And so, uh, you know, the buried, many people who were buried were buried above ground in tombs and uh, you remember in John, it was at 18 or 19, when they were burying Jesus and wrapping his body up. There were some 65 or so pounds of, uh, or at least, it was, it was at least that, maybe 60 to 100 pounds, of spices that they mixed in with it. The last of a good long time. That's what they did. And so the myrrh speaks of death. It speaks of Jesus was some, some a day going to have to die. Remember, he was given myrrh mixed with wine. Uh, there just before he died, because that was a, an anesthesia that was used back in the day. And, of course, Jesus, that's why Jesus refused it at that point. <clears throat> so what do we learn from all this? Well, we've already said it. Gold for a king, incense for a priest, myrrh for one who is to die. <clears throat> Jesus' person and work is being laid out for us from the very beginning of his life. And so wise men and wise women still seek him. As we, uh, Santa was playing, wise men still seek him. Uh, you know, the, the one who wrote that song kind of understood or was using that in the same way that we're trying to now. It, it's something I think that the Bible teaches. Um, the other thing that's kind of interesting here, 
is that Matthew consistently calls Herod king right up until the time that the wise men find Christ and give him his gifts and worship him as king. And from that time forward, he doesn't refer to Herod as king anymore. He just refers to Herod as Herod. And you kind of wonder that if this is Matthew's way under the inspiration of a saying, okay, Herod's the king of this world, but he's not the real king. And here's the real king. And so we're not calling Herod king anymore. Um, and so we would close just by saying, has God done a work in your heart? You know, how do you know that God has done a work in your heart? Well, if he has, you're going to exhibit the same wisdom that these men exhibit. They sought Jesus. Wise men still seek him. They sought truth and information. They came asking questions. That's what they wanted to know. And it's always something, you know, I see, some, I see somebody who calls themselves a Christian and they really don't have any interest in the word. They don't really like to discuss the Bible. They don't really have any questions. It, you know, they don't, and you just wonder. And I hope that's not the case with anybody here. These are the words of life. This is what God means for us to know. Of course, uh, as we've already referred to Micah 5 2, where this is the, the passage that they uh, knew where Jesus was going to be born. But you, O Bethlehem of Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, who's coming, going, or coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. And so you can understand why they understood this to be uh, what the wise men are asking about. And so if you want to know Christ, you have to read his word. Nothing proves uh, that you are you love somebody like the fact that you love to talk to them. You love to hear from them. <clears throat> um, you know, you think about the love, when we love one another, you, you, you're falling in love with somebody and, and you're at great distance what one thing that proves the love is you you're waiting for that mailman to come and bring a letter from your beloved. You know, and, you know, all of us who who uh, have fallen in love, you, you 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 talk hours upon end, getting to know the one that you love. So that's what you do, and it's so different. If you love Christ, we we love to hear from Him. We want to know about Him. It's evidence of love, and so I hope that this is the case. For each one of us. <clears throat> you know, if you, if you got that letter from your loved one. You didn't just uh, throw it up on the, the mantle there and say, Well, look, I got a letter. Yay for me. That's what people do with the Bible. This, this is God's letter to us. And you know, put it on the, t- the, the coffee table and let it sit there. You don't care anything about it. No, you would, you would, we would all say, No, there's something wrong with your... Profess love if you don't open that letter and read it. So wise men know where to find Jesus. And so don't you think these men thought it strange that God's people, in quotes, didn't really know about Jesus' birth or really didn't show any interest in it? Why didn't the scribes travel down to Bethlehem with them? Well, because like they, like Herod, were quite content the way things were. They didn't need a Messiah. They, they were indifferent. But indifference uh, shows one to be a fool. The wise men, uh, they couldn't be sidetracked. 
from following the Messiah. The uh, scribes and Pharisees weren't really interested at all. They knew the Bible. They just didn't care about what it said. And so true wisdom worships when they see Jesus. We aren't in this thing just to learn about Jesus, just to learn truth. We're given light so that we might adore Jesus, that we might love Jesus, that we might trust in Jesus and lean upon Jesus and worship him. And this is why I stand up here week after week. Because it's vital that we understand doctrine properly, but that's not what the end of Christianity, that is the means by which we can become saved and become worshipers of God. Because we must know doctrine so that we can properly worship him. And so these gifts remind us that there's a right way to worship Jesus. You don't just bring whatever you want. You bring that which is appropriate to him. Jesus told the woman, remember, you must worship me in spirit and in truth. Titus 3, 7. Uh, second Titus 3, oh, excuse me, second, second Timothy 3, 7. Always learning, never able to arrive at the knowledge of truth. As Paul describes the false professor, they know the Bible, but they don't get it. They know the stories. They know the accounts. They know that Jesus died on the cross, perhaps, you know. But they don't, they don't put it together. They don't, they don't, they don't, uh, get to where it's leading them, which is to fall on their knees in repentance and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and become his servants. You can know the Bible and never understand it. Because it never gets down here to your heart. And so the story is not for entertainment purposes. It's to reveal the glory of Christ that we might worship him um, and to lead a holy life. We offer gifts in a sense, but we really, what? We're the gifts. As Romans 12 says, we crawl up on that altar and it says we become living gifts, living sacrifices. We don't have to kill ourselves to sacrifice the Lord. We now give our lives to in his service as a living sacrifice. So if you're a Christian, you must offer up myrrh. You die daily. You offer up frankincense as you offer up prayers and sacrifices, that sweet-smelling sacrifices of worship and praise and obedience. And, of course, we offer gold because we acknowledge that Jesus Christ is our king. Obedience is, is the thing that we, that would demonstrate that more than anything. You don't bring, you don't write out a check Sunday morning and say, okay, um, that's my obedience. No, you, no, you offer yourself. If you're just writing out a check but you haven't given them your heart, it's not the same thing. Proper worship can only be done by those who have entered the kingdom and are no longer rebels but lovers of the Son. And so then it finishes there in verse 12. Once they saw the king and they come to know him, they no longer follow the words of the king of this world. They're following, the, they're living in the light of the true king and they go the way he tells them to go, not the way the king of the world tells them to go. So again, just a, a great, to me, a great illustration of those who have come to the light of Jesus Christ. As we close, are any uh, comments or questions? All right, so we can go forth knowing that our God is going before us, right? Amen. Dismissed.